0: her Facebook page at Cynthia Hyatt Incorporated for current events, updates, and inspiration during your week, as well as all social media platforms. You can hear this show as a podcast on iTunes and many other podcast services. Follow her on Facebook and Instagram. Now, with today's fresh insight, here's Cynthia Hyatt.
1: Well, good afternoon. Thank you for joining me today. And you are listening to Conversations with Cynthia. I'm Cynthia Hyatt, your host, and very glad that you tuned in. And thank you for sharing this with your friends, your family. And thank you again for all of your presence on social media. It really helps. And it really helps us as we're promoting some of the new products that I'm creating and the, and the books that I'm writing. And so it really helps to have you really alive and and present on social media for me. So I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. So today, I decided to do the first book, first major book I ever wrote. And this was done probably 10 years ago. And it is called What Has to Die in Order for You to Live. And this was a series of circumstances in my personal life that that I learned this process and I, I realized, oh my goodness, what has to die in me in order for me to truly live? What, what kinds of things are It's kind of like if you have cancer, you know, and what if you have cancer in your elbow and the doctor's done everything they can? You've done chemo and it's going to start spreading. And so they say, you know what, we need to take off your arm. Well, what has to die in order for you to live? So if you have to lose something, that means a lot to you in order to gain even more. That's the struggle that we all have as humans because we we really want to have everything that we want. And this is why it's so powerful when we think about this concept. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 7, and it says, Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. So it's dying to the thing that's killing me. It's why am I keeping this thing alive that's ruining my life? So I say to you, don't trust the natural. Don't trust what seems natural to you. I want you to trust the one who actually did this process. This was Jesus, that he died for you. So think about this. When we're rescuing someone out of bondage, we do extraordinarily creative things that might not make sense in normal living circumstances and situations. See, when God is rescuing you in the spiritual realm, it doesn't always make sense in the natural. It doesn't always manifest naturally in a way that makes sense to us. Maybe God was rescuing Lazarus from some type of bondage we don't even know about. And the way he did it was by letting him die. Because any time God sets someone free, he's glorified. So, I don't think you or I need to necessarily, we don't need to physically die to be free. That's really not what Romans is saying. What that verse in Romans is saying is what has to die in you that you continue to keep alive that's actually killing you. See, this is what Jesus said when he got the message that Lazarus was sick. He said, This sickness is not fatal, he's fallen asleep. And I'm going to wake him up. So when we look deeper into this concept, we see that there might be some things in our life that need to die because they're making us sick. And just as he did this unique process in the life of Lazarus, he can do this in my life. He's doing a creative work that's uniquely designed for you as well. And it fits your life, your calling, and your individuality. So the Lord gave me this message in like 45 minutes. It was at 5 o'clock in the morning. I had just hung up the phone after accepting this invitation to speak in the largest church in Kampala, Uganda. This is East Africa. And I asked the pastor what they wanted me to speak on. And she said, please speak on the 11th chapter of John. Now, this is the story of Lazarus. Now, I tell you this because I truly believe this message was given to me supernaturally. She told me she wanted me to speak on the story of Lazarus, and that is what I have been writing about. So I want you to know that writing for me is very laborious. I I don't enjoy it. I I, I prefer writing music. It's much more comfortable and natural to me, and it seems far more forgiving. But literary endeavors are very painful, very stressful, and are fraught with all kinds of struggles for me. I, I tend to labor over every word, the font how much to elaborate what scriptures i want to use what version of the bible you know all these different things i have this tendency to overuse commas you know i have these long run-on sentences so i i want to look at every sentence from every possible direction that it could be construed from and then reference it notate it justify it i mean oh my goodness how complicated it can become so after i said Goodbye to Pastor Manjure in East Africa. I wrote this message in 45 minutes, in the dark, actually. When I told my friends how quickly it came out, they, they knew it was a miracle. See, more than anything, God wants his people free. Free to be who he originally created them to be. And so what became apparent to me is that the African people thought they needed money and physical healing. And, well, absolutely they do in many ways. However... Even more powerful than that immediate need was the need for knowledge. See, the truth is always the most powerful weapon against the enemy. If I have the truth in me, then no weapon being used against either me on the inside or the outside can prosper. So just as in the chapter on the knowledge of good and evil, the first abuse of humans was intellectual abuse. Notwithstanding this idea that the enemy instead of attacking their bodies first, instead of Satan ruining their, their, their the garden for them, he gave them inappropriate and untruthful knowledge. See if our minds are infected, it goes viral, the entire system becomes corrupted. Think about a computer. That has inappropriate installations, a virus, or it's devoid of the necessary firewalls to protect it, it's now unable to discern information appropriately, to disseminate it accurately, support it in making rational, evaluative decisions. So if Satan can cause us to be deceived, then our entire paradigm shifts. We're in like this altered reality. And it especially affects the way we think about ourselves, what we think we need, and the way we try to get those needs met. So our perception and choices will be coming out of a mindset now of slavery and depression. What was so difficult for the African people to comprehend was that I had a job helping people because they were so unhappy, depressed, and anxious. The Ugandan people knew why they were feeling all these feelings, Sadly, a great majority of them were dying of AIDS. They repeatedly asked me to pray for new blood for them or for their loved ones. They were anxious because they had no money to buy food, no running water. There's rioting in the city because of the current elections. One of the evenings I spoke, there were police with machine guns protecting the church because the city was in such a struggle. So the struggles and pain in Africa are very concrete and very survival-driven, Our struggles are similar in a metaphorical sense, but our struggles for survival are on the inside. Their struggles for survival are more concrete and very present on the outside. So they oftentimes don't even have the time or energy to deal with their internal world. But either way, we all need God in order to be free. And he wants to help us discover this unique way he'll do it for you and for me. See, we see in the New Testament that Jesus never repeated a healing. He ministered to each person in a completely unique way. The only time Jesus repeated a miracle was when he was meeting a need that was a universal human need, like the need for food. We see that in the feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 3,000, healing the blind, the deaf, the possessed, the lame, that these were all very unique to each person. So truly what the African people need is the same thing that you and I need. Knowledge based in truth. Not based in feelings. So this is about discovering the unique way in which God is going to heal and deliver us from whatever our unique and personal captivity may be. This is in order that I might live freely and authentically what needs to die in order for me to live so I want you to to listen to some of these verses because God is appealing to our likeness unto him and reversing the curse of knowledge that wants to bring us death so in Proverbs 25 2 he says God delights in concealing things scientists delight in discovering things so my delight or glory is to search out and know God first, then to discover God's way that's uniquely manifesting his way in my life. So Jeremiah 33.3 3 says, Call to me, I will answer you. I will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. So ask him about yourself, your calling, his love, desires for you, why you were born. And then I want you to believe the following truth. And this is Ephesians 3.20. It's one of my favorite, my favorite memory verses. It says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. That's what God is telling us he can do for us. So I want you to think about how powerful this is. See, using scriptures as a formula, as a template, that can help. But I want you to find yours that really speak to your heart. So join me in the next segment as we talk more about what has to die in order for you to live. Welcome back. You're listening to Conversations with Cynthia. I'm Cynthia Hyatt, your host. And we are talking today about this unique phenomena or or idea, concept that God gave me 10 years ago, which is the first book I've ever written. And it is available on Amazon. If you like what you're hearing today, you can read it in its entirety. And it is, What Has to Die in Order for You to Live? See, we keep all kinds of things alive that are killing us, right? I mean, the the biggest one is addictions. How about low self-esteem, fear, envy? All these things keep us down, keep us from being who God really created us to be and enjoying the life that he wants us to have. So I want you to understand that God hates death. He hates death. The reason he died was so that no one ever has to die for their own sins. He did it for you and I. You see, this would be a permanent death for us. We can't come back to life like Jesus did. We're unable to die for our sin, to overcome our sin, and then resurrect ourselves to live without it, right? So what's killing you? What are you dying over? See, I will spend eternity with God and never know nor fully comprehend the pain and anguish he felt over the bondage and the abuse of his people. These are his kiddos. That's what we are. And so one of the most moving and meaningful verses to me is Psalms sixty-nine, thirty-three, And it has really comforted me through all the years. And it says, God hears the cries of the needy. He does not despise his captive people. He hears the cries of the needy, and he does not despise his captive people. See, he's not mad at us because we're using things to to boost us up. We're using things to prop us up. We're using things that that make us feel better in the moment that really are tearing us down. He understands being held captive by something. And so the Message Bible says he doesn't walk out on the wretched. Now, I don't know about you, but I've done some wretched things before. I can can be that. I don't like to admit that. I work really hard not to be that. But I understand wretchedness. And what he says here in this verse 33, he says he doesn't walk out on those that are wretched. See, he's not mad at us because we're living dead. And not knowing how to desire and love life as he knows it. He's not mad at us for being enslaved to things that cause us death or to live dead. He's brokenhearted over it. He's grieved. He's angry at what happened to his world, what happened to his children. See, he wants to give us back the life that is continuously being stolen from us by ourselves, our sin, the sins of the world, and certainly by Satan. And so as we look deeper into the story of Lazarus, what we see are many correlations and a theme throughout the Bible that's Regarding bondage and sickness and captivity and death and dying and living. See, we see throughout God's creation these examples. Like, think of the process of the caterpillar to the butterfly. The process of the hermit crab. The acorn that becomes the mighty oak. How about the day that passes and it lives and then it sleeps through the night and it's born again in the morning? So think about these things. That idea of the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. Think how sad it would be if the caterpillar decided it didn't want to leave the cocoon because it felt so safe. And it ended up dying in the cocoon and missing out on this life that God had for it. So God tells us in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11, he says, I don't think the way you think. The way you work isn't the way I work. For as the sky soars high above the earth, so I work. My work surpasses the way you work, and the way I think is beyond the way you think, just as the rain and the snow descend from the skies. And don't go back until they've watered the earth, doing their work of making things grow and blossom, producing seed for farmers and food for the hungry. So will the words that come out of my mouth not come back empty-handed. They'll do the work I sent them to do. They'll complete the assignment I gave them. So it's imperative that you really understand what God is saying in this passage. He's telling us emphatically he doesn't do things the way we do things. And he said that in the beginning of that chapter. It probably will not make sense to us. Not only will we have difficulty comprehending what he's doing, but it will most likely test our faith, our confidence, and it may even make us feel a little crazy. Because we all know humans don't like feeling out of control unless they decide to be out of control. So we might not recognize that God's working. We may feel abandoned and neglected while he's doing this good work he promised to complete. It's important and helpful for us to continuously remind ourselves that he doesn't think the way we think and he doesn't work the way we work. Thank God, right? Because my ways certainly don't seem to always be working and my thoughts, no matter how intelligent I think I may be, certainly don't seem to be very smart sometimes. Actually, a lot of the times, if I'm really to be honest. So furthermore, the following passage out of Isaiah is one that needs to be planted deep within being and referenced often see the version in the NIV says when God's hand acts no man can reverse it so this is comforting to me to know that anything God has made God sustains because I know that many changes I make don't even stick right So this is why it's so important that you say to yourself, I need to look at these bad habits. I need to look at these ways of thinking, maybe these grudges that I hold, maybe these proclivities that I participate in, or, you know, these addictions that I might have. Maybe I need to look at these, maybe more through the eyes of God, that he recognizes that we're really kind of doing the best we can. It's pretty tough down here. And so he really is very grieved by what we have to go through in order to truly live. And he wanted to make it as simple as possible for us and as easy as possible. And that's why he did it first. That's why he let himself be killed so that we could live. And it's hard to comprehend that because we have a tendency to want to feel good about things. And if we don't feel good, then we start to lose trust. And we think, well, God really isn't who he says he is. I can't really trust him. He didn't fix this. Well, maybe fixing that would have created a new problem for you. So maybe he's working from the end back to the beginning. He just says his ways aren't our ways. He doesn't do things the way we do things. So what are God's ways? What are his thoughts? How does a father think toward a child? I cannot resist all the scripture references. I I could give you so many more, but it's imperative that we address the character issues, our fleshly desires, that we see how God feels about us and how he is able to deal with us because of the fact that he was willing to die for us. So join me in the next segment as we talk more about this idea. What has to die in your life? What are you keeping alive that is causing you to not really live? Welcome back. You're listening to Conversations with Cynthia. Thank you for joining me today. And we are talking about this concept that God helped me with that has stuck with me for many, many years. And that is this idea of what has to die in my life in order for me to live. And it can be things as simple as, you know, I have a tendency to probably eat too many pretzels, and that's probably not very healthy for me. I like Diet Pepsi. That's probably not helpful And so maybe I need to die to that. Maybe I need to just put that down and say, you know what, God, that really isn't helping my body. What if I have grudges against people? What if I have unforgiveness? What if I beat myself up emotionally inside? Nobody knows how mean I am to myself. Maybe that's what needs to end. Because if I don't end that, how am I going to continue living? And so this is why I want you to think about this idea of what is the thing in your life that needs to die in order for you to truly have the life that God intended for you to have. So let's look at this. This idea of Jesus is really worked on fulfilling his calling and his purpose on earth is then shifted to working through you and I. So let's look at all these. There's several different deaths that we have that we can look at. What needed to die when Jonah was in the belly of the whale? What needed to die when Paul was blinded? What needed to die while Peter waited and needed Christ's forgiveness and acceptance for his betrayal? See, thankfully, Peter didn't kill himself. Now, he did go back to his old way of life as a man-made solution. But how about Judas? His pride, his greed, his control could have died the night he betrayed the Lord. And he, he could have lived in a redeemed state just as Peter did. But Judas didn't do that. He had too much pride. So think about these different people. When we, when we think about the great exploits with Christ, and they live a testimony of faith and forgiveness that would have healed and inspired millions So this is how Judas could have affected the world. Instead, his story is a story of derision, of tragedy, of shame, and of negative instruction of what not to be. So instead of his character flaws dying that night with the Lord, he killed himself. So I don't want you to listen to the spirit of suicide. That really is Satan's solution. It's not creative. Not personal, it's not a unique solution. Rather, really it's common and simple. It's an oversimplified solution that produces incredibly complicated issues for those that are left. So Romans 14 chapter, chapter 14, verses seven and eight says, "For none of us has li- none of us lives for ourselves alone. None of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live." We must live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. We are never alone. Stop judging. Do not be your own judge and jury. This is what the story of Judas teaches us. He could have come back from that. He could have come back and had a great testimony of forgiveness from God and a renewal of life and a new way to live. But see, Judas thought his only value was in his performance, in his intellect. But yet Jesus called him a friend, knowing who Judas is, knowing who he was. Jesus called him and picked him to be a disciple and a friend, knowing that one day Judas would give him up. He knew whom he chose. He wasn't shocked and surprised by Judas's behaviors. He knew Judas was stealing from him all along, and Judas was being offered the greatest gift of all, walking, talking, living, learning, and being loved by God, his creator. God knows whom he's dealing with. He's not surprised and shocked by your sin and character flaws. Here's the deal, Judas couldn't get over himself. Judas shocked himself, not Jesus. It's a very painful thing to shock oneself. And Judas could not see a solution to the mess he had created. This is why it's so imperative that we recognize that as long as you are living, as long as you have breath, you have chance. And you have choices. You can change the direction of your life in one second. So this is why we want to make sure that we are saying to ourselves, you know, I need to get over myself. If I need to change something, I just need to change it. I need to do it today. And I need to ask for help if that's necessary. I need to get education. But more than anything, I need to get over myself. I need to stop thinking that I was somehow this person and now I shocked myself and I'm not that person so I can't live with me. We need to be accepting and loving of even our worst parts. Because God is. This is Cynthia Hyatt with Conversations with Cynthia. I hope you're in the next segment. Well, welcome back. You're listening to Conversations with Cynthia. I'm Cynthia Hyatt, your host. Thank you for joining me. And if you're just tuning in, I want to make sure that you can go to any of your favorite podcast servers, and we have, we're have we on those, and you can listen to the show in its entirety. Thank you for referring this to your friends. I really appreciate that. And, and I'm excited by what God is doing. And he's always doing something new, and he never tires, which is amazing to me, because I can get tired of myself. I can tire myself out. And so we're talking about this idea, what has to die what has to die in your life in order for you to truly live? And it might just be a thought process. It might be something in your past that you can't get over. It might be fear, anxiety, embarrassment. It it's so many things that could be the very thing that's killing the life that you are intended to have. So this is where we want to understand that God always speaks the truth to set you free. And Satan always speaks the facts about you to create bondage. Because the enemy of our soul always wants to beat us up. Because the enemy of our soul, he really did mess up and he's not allowed to fix it. He lost his opportunity to fix it. So he is not a happy being. So think about this. Nothing, nothing is impossible for God. No situation you find yourself in or have even created for yourself. There's no bad decision that's too hard for God to redeem, to correct. God says his arm is not too short. See, the Lord answered Moses and he said, is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. And Jeremiah responds to the Lord by saying what he knows is true. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, outstretched arm. Nothing is impossible for you. This is why it's important to understand that God's love is not shallow or weak. He's able to forgive and restore. So don't Be God in your own life, the way Judah was in his. You belong to God. He paid a high price for you. He died so you don't have to. He wants you to live, and he wants to live with you, regardless of your weaknesses and your failings. See, there are things that are common to all men, not shocking or surprising to God. You may have shocked and surprised yourself, But that's not God's position. See, stealing, lying, manipulating, conniving, and too desperate, you know, to rise to the top of... uh, These are all common to mortal men. And so we become desperate to get out of the circumstance we've created ourselves. And we seem to think we know better. We seem to think we know a faster, shorter route out of our sin. And God says to us in Proverbs, he says, There is a way that seems right to a man but in the end leads to death. And that's Proverbs 14, 12. And I will tell you honestly, I knew that verse intellectually, but I ended up having to learn it physically, socially, actually currently, not current today. But in my adult life, I had to learn that verse. But there's a way that seems right to me. But in the end, it's going to kill whatever I'm trying to create. And so again, I say this to you. His ways aren't our ways. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. So don't, quote unquote, do Judas. See, poor, pathetic Judas. The one Christ would say, woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It'd be better if he'd never been born. Now, Christ said this out of love and pity. He didn't say this out of condemnation. And so could the real betrayal be Judas' refusal of Jesus' forgiveness, of his redemption of his life? See, Peter's betrayal was forgivable. Judas's betrayal was forgivable as well, if he would have let it be. So because Christ is all love, he said this about Judas with great sadness and not disgust. He would weep over Judas because his chapter was over, because of Judas himself. See, his betrayal was not the shortest verse in his life. It became the longest and the eternal chapter of his life. So Psalms chapter 30, verse 5 says, For God's anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may remain for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. So the Lord knew that joy and promise and new life were coming through Lazarus dying, just as through his upcoming death, that his anger and sadness over death, our deadly choices, right? Only last for a moment, because rejoicing and promise are coming for eternity. That your chapter is now an eternal chapter to be lived out on heaven and then on earth and then in heaven nothing is impossible so stop being a judas right god had a way for him we're killing ourselves with our behaviors see the judas way is pride it feels comfortable but his pride would not let him see any other way than his own solutions in his mind in his world he had gone too far his behaviors were too low, too bad, too big for him to live with. Even though God could and was. See, only Judas saw through his own eyes, not through the eyes of God. So God's way isn't our way. His perspective is not ours. And so Romans chapter 8, verse 39, I love this And this is out of the Message Bible. This is what God says. What do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of his chosen? Who would dare even point a finger? The one who died for us, who raised us to life, helps us be in the presence of God at this very moment, and he's sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. No trouble, no hard times, no hatred, no hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. And he goes on to say, I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. So this is imperative that you understand this beautiful Psalms 139. And it says, Lord, you've searched me. You know me. See, that in and of itself is powerful. When I really realize that God has searched me out, every cell of my body, He knows. And He says, I've searched you and I know you. I know when you sit, I know when you rise. I perceive your thoughts from afar. God says, he discerns my going out and my lying down. He says, I'm familiar with all your ways, Cynthia. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of scary. He's familiar with all my ways, good, bad, or indifferent. And he says, before word is on your tongue, God knows it completely. And then God says, he hems me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Where can I go from your spirit? I can't flee from your presence. Surely, the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you, God. Nothing you have done is too embarrassing to recover from. Please hear me when I say this. Nothing. Nothing is too terrible. Nothing is too big for God. He has a way. His way. When I memorized this verse, it was very helpful for me. This is Isaiah forty three eighteen and 19. It says, forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. What does that tell me? God says, hey, you know what? Your past is part of how you got to this day. So forget about it. Don't dwell on it. I'm doing a new thing in you. And I want you to perceive it. And I make the way for you, Cynthia. That is so helpful. See, he has a way for us to live. We're killing ourselves in small ways and big ways. Maybe not fatally. But at the least, we're killing our authentic self. Peter denied Christ and went back to his old life. Judas betrayed God and killed himself. How are you killing you, the real you? Are you taking matters into your own hands? Are you fighting to keep the wrong things alive? I'm going to say that again. How are you killing yourself? Are you taking matters into your own hands, not trusting God for help? Are you fighting to keep the wrong things alive? What needs to die in your life? What is not authentic to the real you? The authentic creation that God intended when he knit you together in your mother's womb. What needed to die? See, it died when Lazarus passed away. But Lazarus didn't really die. So we're all in the dying process, just as Lazarus was. But are the right things dying? Are the wrong things dying, such as my hope, my faith, my love for God, for myself or my for others? Are my dreams dying? Or my faith and hope in God's promises? Is my childlike wonder of God being replaced with cynicism or skepticism? Is the trial and the hardship I'm enduring producing a jadedness or bitterness? Maybe the refining process. Is just creating weariness and you want to quit. So the question needs to be for you, what is dying in me so that Christ may live in me? Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I now live in the body by faith, who, with the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, don't partner with Satan in dying to the wrong things so that you become ineffective for this world and Christ's death is now in vain, let Christ lead the dying process. If you partner with Satan, he will lead you into keeping the wrong things alive. And this leads to a living death, not a crucified life. So let's really take this seriously. I want you to really think about in your life What are the habits? What are the thought processes? What are the judgments? What do I do recreationally? And then ask yourself, what am I not doing that's causing me to slowly die so that I'm not the person that I know I can be? What do I need to do? What do I need to let die in order for me to truly live? And so this is why It's very important when we are going through this process that you ask yourself, what has to die in my life in order for me to truly live? Because this is the thing. Death can trump life. It's so insidious. Thank you for joining me today. God bless you in this process. Have a wonderful week, and I look forward to talking to you next week.